I said this morning to uh, the men in the uh, Sunday school, I said, you know, I know that with the elements, you know, whoever braves the elements today, I said, we're going to see who the real faithful are in this church. They reminded me, no, that's just the people who need God's grace the most. And I think that's the, the right way of putting it. We need God's grace, and that's why we're here. Um, well, we've read the scripture uh, that I really want to just kind of base the sermon on. And it's not going to be the scripture that we're going to uh, spend our entire time on. Uh, but really what I want to do as we look towards a new year is I wanted to take a, a text, but more importantly, what came to mind was the entire book of Philippians. And uh, there are many reasons for that. But I just wanted to sort of set us down the right path for a new year. And I thought, what better way to do that than to focus on a healthy church, an exemplary church, where Paul uh, gave them so many encouraging things to think about uh, as they participated with him in the Gospels, things that we could call essentials uh, of, the ch- of, the church, of church life, each essentials of church life. And that's really what I want to focus Uh, our time together uh, on. So let's pray together one more time, ask God's blessing on us, and uh, we will begin. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now, Lord, and with our hearts expectant to hear from your word. And Lord, for myself, I am just grateful for a new year and grateful for a new day. Lord, in light of the the perils of the weather and uh, the devastation even of the weather, Uh, Last night, Lord, so many people had their lives turned upside down, and uh, people lost their lives, and families are bereaved of them today. And so, Father, we lift up families that are suffering today, that have lost their homes, understand something like 60 homes have been lost, and uh, Father, we certainly resonate with our neighbors today, and we certainly uh, pray for them, we lift them up, that through this calamity that they are going through right now, even as we speak, people are, are rummaging through the rubble of their, what remains of their homes. And so, Father, we just ask that you would use this now as an opportunity for the gospel in their community. And uh, Lord, I just pray, God, that you would give us a heart, Lord, now to, to stay on a biblical path for heritage grace, that you would convict us, Lord, and encourage us and prompt us to do the things, Lord, that would make for a biblical church. That's really what we want. And so, Lord, I pray for this church, and I ask that Heritage Grace would always be a place where your word would be preeminent, a place where the word of God would always be center stage and would always be exposited and expounded. I pray, God, for the soul of our church, that it would never shift from the gospel, that it would never move away from the centrality of Christ and the glory of our triune God. I pray, Lord, for the families of our church for this year, that you would strengthen them and meet their needs, God, so that they can struggle and war with their trials in the flesh and the world that we're in, Lord, that you would accompany each family and strengthen each home and every marriage, every husband, every wife, every child. Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us the strength, Lord, to wage war, as it were, in our homes, that we would keep the enemy at bay. Father, I pray you protect the homes of our church. 
I pray for the men in our church, Lord, that you would raise them up to be godly leaders in their home. I pray for the women in the church that you would raise them up to be exemplary wives and exemplary mothers, that you would pour into them a sense of calling and a, a high calling of motherhood and, and what it means to be a, 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 a wife and a homemaker and all the things that you've called them to. And for the children in our church, Lord, we ask, God, this year that you would grab a hold of the hearts of the young people among us, that you would save them at the, at the earliest possible age, Lord, that they, they would come to faith and that we would see many young people in our number baptized, brought into the church through membership, Lord, brought into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we pray for the total package today. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a vision that is in keeping with your heart, that you would give us a, a sense of direction that we know that we're doing the will of God at Heritage Grace. Protect our church, Lord. Keep the enemy at bay. Keep sin far away from us. Keep the schemes of the devil outside of the church. Deliver our church, Lord, from sensuality and carnality and worldliness. Keep our church pure, God, and keep us on the highway of holiness, we pray. Give us the mind of Christ in this church. We pray, Father, for our unity now. I pray for all the members that are not here with us today, Lord, that they would be with us nevertheless in spirit. Lord, and that we would be united, as Paul tells the Romans, that we would magnify you with one voice. As Paul told the Philippians here, that we would have one purpose, that we would be united in one spirit. And so, God, I pray for the unity of our church, Lord, that you would always keep us united. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would always let that unity be around the doctrines that we cherish so much in the gospel, that we would be united around a common creed, that we would be united around a common purpose, and that the gospel would always remain central in our unity, that we would learn to show charity to one another in areas where we may disagree. And Father, we know that the church is a place where the glory of God is at stake. And so, Lord, we pray for our unity. We pray for our cause. We pray for our life, Lord. We pray, for the, we, we, we pray Lord, for the ministry that goes forth out of Heritage Grace, that it will always be honoring to you, that it would always be for your glory, that you would be uppermost in this church, that you would be central. And so, Father, protect us from turning from from the right path, from turning to the left or to the right. But help us, Lord, always to be stayed upon you, to fix our eyes on the Lord, to ever have the Lord before us. And so, Father, for a new year, we know that we will be confronted with new challenges. And so we pray, God, strengthen us for those trials and those tribulations that are certain to come. Lord, we know that we are more than conquerors in Christ. We know that it is not by removing us from our trials and removing us from our temptations and removing us from a world of fallenness 
but it is that you meet us in the midst of this world. It is, as Paul told the Romans, that it is in the midst of these things that we are more than conquerors. Despite all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And so, Lord, remind us of who we are in Christ today. Father, we pray that you would bless the ministry of your word at Heritage Grace. That all the word ministry that goes on in this church, that you would encourage us through that. Encourage us in our small group settings when we're gathered around in small groups Lord, that you would make us agents of encouragement, affirmation, and consolation for one another. Bless our time, Lord, as we equip each other during Sunday school. Give us, Lord, a heart to know you, a heart that wants to grow in the Word of God and grow as a disciple of Christ. And Lord, we pray that in the preaching of your Word that you would always be exalted here, Keep Pastor Chris and myself away from straying from proclaiming your word into frivolous things that have no lasting meaning. And we pray, God, that you would also build up our church and encourage us as we continue in the work of evangelism through whatever means that may be. I pray for every individual member of our church that you would fill them with wisdom Give them compassion for the lost. Open their eyes to the horrors of hell and to the glories of heaven. Show them and stamp eternity upon their eyes. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us an eternal mindset going into a new year that we would not forget the fact that we are on a course, the fact that we are headed towards a goal and that our lives will very quickly issue forth in eternity. And so, God, who is sufficient for all of these things? We pray, Lord, that you would make us adequate. We pray, God, that you would give us your grace, which is sufficient for all of these things. Strengthen us, Lord, and help us to be content in your grace. Because as you've told the Apostle Paul, your grace truly is sufficient for us. So, Lord, remind us of that today. We pray you bless, our word, uh, bless your word now and bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, the Apostle Paul, we read this during Sunday school, but the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, verse 31 and 32, as he's sort of sending the Ephesian elders off on their own, he's committing them uh, on a life that, where they will not see his face anymore. So in many ways, he is sort of parting ways with them, and he is committing them to the future, what lies ahead. Paul says, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those that are sanctified. Well, fortunately for us, we not only have Paul's desire for the church's success, 
But we also have a book that is, I think, meant to help us, where we can imitate, we can emulate, we can follow in the same direction as a church like Philippi. And so from Philippians, what I want to do is I want to focus on three things that I believe are essential for the life of any true, biblical, pure church. And I want to take Philippians as our model for several reasons. But one of the reasons why is because, as you know, uh, Philippians is a book devoid of scandal, devoid of rebuke, devoid of discipline, devoid of correction. Seemingly, things in Philippi are going pretty good. The church is doing well. The church is healthy. It's on a right direction. And Philippians, I think, is meant, at least in part, to encourage the church to keep going down that path. So that's what I want to do for our church, and I want to point out three things that are going to help us do this. Number one, and I'm going to you, I'm going I'm to fix in on a word that Paul uses here. You go to Philippians chapter 1, uh, where we started, verses 3. I'm going to read down to verse 7 here for our first point, and that is participation in the gospel. I use that word participation because it's directly from Paul. Notice verse 3. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel. Another way you can translate that is because of. It's sort of a causal phrase. Because of the, your participation of, in the gospel. From the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing. that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So there it is again, participation, partakers. So the first thing is our participation in the gospel. I want to begin by that because that is, in essence, the most important thing of all. The most important thing of all, when you have a church like Philippi, uh, the leadership of the church cannot but help to give themselves over to the church and to bless them. Uh, Paul told the Thessalonians that, that they were very dear to them so that he gave them their lives. He gave his life over to the church. Now, the apostle is affectionate towards these churches. First and foremost, I think, as it says here, because this church was gospel-centered. And I want to really zero in on that issue right there, that in order for our church to succeed, and I've often mentioned this because we are a young church, we're only a few years old, uh, you know, the, the success of our church is not a foregone conclusion. But it will be determined on points like this, whether or not our church were, is going to hold fast to the gospel is going to participate with the gospel. And Philippi certainly was that. Not only did they say that they were gospel-centered, they proved it by their commitment. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, he mentions this 
in the text above when he says, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Now, the reason that's important, folks, is because the Apostle Paul is suffering for the gospel as he writes this letter. He is under Roman imprisonment. And there is evidence here that part of that imprisonment included the fact that there were those that did not support Paul in his imprisonment. They thought that Paul, as commentators speculate, that Paul brought the persecution that he was suffering upon himself. And so they wished to do him harm even in prison. But not the Philippians. The Philippians were committed to the gospel. And look at what it says here, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorium Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have become far more courageous or have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. See, it, it was a difference between looking at what Paul was suffering as Paul suffering for his own foolishness, bringing persecution upon himself, or actually viewing the circumstances, the present circumstances of the Apostle Paul as furthering the cause of the gospel, strengthening the church, evangelizing the Praetorium Guard. Practically, therefore, this church was committed to supporting the advance of the gospel. And so should we. And um, before I move on to uh, a few things I want to say about being gospel-centered, I want to just point out a couple just practical reasons why we need to be gospel-centered. Number one, a gospel-centered church is typically a thriving church. And the reason why is because a gospel-centered church is a cross-centered church. Uh, look with me to Galatians, please. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I think this captures the whole essence of what it means to be, be gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered. You know, you can substitute these words. People write books, and that's what they entitle them. But they're all getting at the same essential thing, that our lives are gospel-centered. There could be no more gospel-centered statement than Paul's statement right here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, the, the cross-centered life is a... Is a a life of self-denial, self-abandonment. That is what a gospel-centered church looks like. It looks like a, a church full of surrendered people, people that have surrendered their own rights. And I'll get into more of that in a moment in terms of our identity. But on top of that, it also leads us to live a grace-filled life. The reason why the gospel has to be the center is because it reminds us of the mercy that has been shown to us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 shows us what a grace-centered life really looks like, a life of broken-hearted gratitude to God. 
brokenhearted gratitude to God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul reminds the Ephesians, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Um, it revives our gratefulness. When we are gospel-centered, we will be a grateful people. The next thing is that it also imparts to us a great sense of purpose to be gospel-centered. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle Paul uses this phrase that I want you to own for your own life. You know the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church in Corinth, unlike the church in Philippi, was full of cliques and division and strife, and it became factitious. There were factions that were forming in the church. People were swearing allegiance to this teacher and that teacher and this theology and that theology, and it was splitting the church up, so much so that Paul tells the church, you're acting like mere humans. <laughs> Remarkable statement, is it not? What is he saying? Christians are not mere humans. <laughs> You're Christians. You're supposed to be different. That's what he's saying. But in verse 9, he says, we are God's fellow workers. Think about that. In other words, if we're a gospel-centered church, we will be reminded that we are in this with God. Do you have purpose today? I was thinking about this. Purpose keeps you alive. Purpose keeps you happy. Purpose keeps you vibrant. Purpose keeps you hopeful. But when you lose purpose, you lose perspective. When you lose purpose, you lose zeal. When you lose purpose, you lose joy. And so I thought to ask you that very simple question. Do you have purpose today? Do you have a sense of great purpose because Christian, let me remind you of this, by virtue of the gospel, your great purpose in life is to be fellow workers with God. But if you don't have a gospel-centered perspective, that will not come home to you. I thought about Su Susanna Spurgeon. I thought about Spurgeon's wife because you may well know that Spurgeon's wife, for a great majority of Spurgeon's ministry, was bedridden. She was invalid. And very much could be tempted to think that she had no purpose. After all, what could she really do? She can't run around with the kids in nursery. She can't do Sunday school. She can't go out evangelizing with people. She can't go on a mission trip. She can't set up tables during the women's teas or anything like that. And yet, Mrs. Spurgeon had great purpose in her life. Number one, she encouraged her husband greatly. And number two, she systematically distributed her husband's sermons to thousands of pastors around the world. Just because she was bedridden, that didn't mean she had no purpose. But because she was gospel-centered, she realized 
that she was God's fellow worker right there in that bed that she had to lay in. Don't lose your sense of purpose. Don't lose your gospel-centeredness. Now, if we don't keep our church in the direction of being gospel-centered, which I know that's such a trendy phrase, is it not? (laughs) Gospel-centered. But it is true. If we don't keep our focus on the gospel, it's not that our church will just sort of nebulously become something else. No, something is waiting to fill the void. That's the problem. The church is meant to be gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered, and biblically saturated. If this does not happen, then secondary and things of lesser importance will come in and fill the void. The church is not meant to be anything else than the household of God, the support of the truth, the place where the word of God is taught and expounded and unleashed. It is not, therefore, mainly a music center. (laughs) It is not, therefore, a counseling center. It is not a daycare center. It's not a dating center. I know many churches function that way today. It's not a family center. It is not a missions agency either. It is not a recovery group. You see, whenever the gospel is removed from the center, then the church can become about all these other good things. My dear friends, it was Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones that says, It is not that we don't take matters of practicality up into our study. He says, oh, we take these matters up, he says, but we take them all the way up. All the way up. And he says, we lay them bare before the throne of God as to their Godwardness or their godlessness. That is how a gospel-centered church does all these other things. It compares it with the center of it all, the gospel. Nothing, my dear friends, can dethrone the gospel of the triune God in in the church. Nothing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'll remind you again of the context of these words. Because Paul, though he left us many letters, you know, he doesn't leave us a church ministry manual a 400-page manual on how to do church. Instead, he leaves us with the profoundest gospel-centered statements like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with support, superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, and here it is. I determined to know nothing among you, Underline the word, mark it down, nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why is that important? Because it preaches well? Well, it does preach well. But the reason it's important is because of the context. Where is Paul ministering this only Christ and Him crucified message? He is preaching it in a Corinthian culture. 
Do you know what a Corinthian culture was like? A Corinthian culture, much like our own culture today, was a pluralistic, hedonistic, narcissistic, materialistic, self-centered society where the most valuable thing of all is what is new. Does that remind you of any place? And Paul says, I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Come on, Paul. Get a little trendy. (laughs) Get a little relevant. Give us something new. Paul says, no. The gospel doesn't need to be reimagined. It doesn't need to be readjusted, recontextualized. It doesn't need to be redacted. It doesn't need to be edited. The gospel only needs to be reiterated. That's our task. This is the task of a true church. False churches fill the church with short-lived successes where the parking lot may be full, but the souls of God's people are empty and shallow. And therefore, a gospel-centered church is a church of substance, a deep church, or it should be. Now, I can spend all day on that, and I could have very easily just spent all day on that one point throughout the book of Philippians, but there are a few other things that I want to go from, okay, the life of the church depends on the fact that it is gospel-centered. Got it. The second thing is not just our participation in the gospel, but, 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 but a nuance here, our participation in Christ. And I want you to see that out of Philippians again, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, a common, often-cited, well-memorized verse. For me, Paul Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is remarkable. And what is remarkable about this, as I was studying this, was the idea that this is not, we're not getting a snapshot into the life of a person who had a Gnostic Christianity that none of us can ever attain to. We're not looking into the spirituality of a man that lived in such a way that we will never ever get to be, um, that we will never get to share the experience of this type of Christian maturity. No, far from that. The Apostle Paul means for us to emulate him in this. Uh, for example, look at Philippians 2.17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And then he says this, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. And share your joy with me so that what Paul ultimately was after was an exchange of mutual Christ-centered joy. Look at uh, Philippians 4, beginning in verse 8. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, 
Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then this, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. You see, these virtues made Paul reflect on his own character. And then he says, or at least he thought, that his character, therefore, is to be emulated. Practice these things. You see that? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, that brings me back to the original resolve. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is not sort of a... That's not sort of a pie-in-the-sky vision of your life. That is what our lives ought to consist of. Ought to consist of. So as we think about this, two things come to mind. And I, I want to break up that phrase into two chunks because I think what it gives us is our communion with Christ and our conduct in Christ. First is our communion with Christ. Turn with me to chapter 3 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, because the secret to Paul's spirituality, the secret to Paul's joy, the secret to Paul's Christian life, his zeal, is not that he was a scholar. It's not that he was, you know, it's not that he knew Greek or Hebrew or hermeneutics. It's not that he was a systematic theologian. He was those things, but it was above everything. It was his personal communion, or even we can say his knowing of Christ. Look at uh, Philippians 3.7. Whatever things were gained to me, he says, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What does he mean by the sake of Christ? Moreover, he explains it. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them, count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. This is, our, this is our communion with Christ. And I want to challenge us on this issue of participation just by asking two penetrating questions from this text right here. The first one is this. To live is Christ is a statement of devotion. So first, the question is, do, does our level of devotion to Christ look like this? Where we can say with Paul, to live is Christ. Life is Christ. Is our life so wrapped up in Him that He is our very life? It's remarkable, is it not? In reality, the question is merely examining if, in fact, we are what Scripture says that we are. Because a Christian is a person that is in Him. You are meant to be in Him. You are hidden in Him. We have union with Him, and we are meant to have the deepest communion with Him. And so again, for Paul, life consisted of knowing Christ because for him for him Christ was in every area of his life 
We cannot work without Christ. We cannot do business without Christ. We cannot travel without Christ. We can't have fun without Christ. Our leisure is Christ-centeredness. We can't raise a family without Christ. We can't do marriage without Christ. We can't do singleness without Christ. We cannot dress without Christ. We cannot study without Christ. This is what Paul means when he says, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The second question is just the other side of the coin. From devotion to love. Do we love Christ? It's a simple question, but it's penetrating because Jesus essentially staked the entire Christian life upon that one question. Do you love me? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because again, to love him means that we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow, what a worldview. That means that the eminent reality of death is not a loss. Ultimately, persecution is not loss. Death through disease is not the end. Death through a tornado is not the greatest tragedy of all. If your life is in Christ, hidden in Christ, if you are one with Christ, if you love Christ, then to you to die is gain, actually. This is a crazy worldview that he's leaving us here. But it's the right one. It's the only one where we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, at the end of our life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I have, he says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, but also to all of those who loved His appearing. Isn't that remarkable? Why? Why is death gain to Paul? Because death is actually the realization of the sum of all of our joy. Because we gain Christ. It's just remarkable. Just remarkable. This also means that we will fall more and more out of love with the world. Turn with me to 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 2. This is, in, this is a very evangelical kind of message today. <laughs> a lot of classic passages. But these are foundational and potent. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. To love Christ in this way so that death is gain also means that we are losing our love grip of this world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. 
Now, obviously, what John is saying there by the use of cosmos is not the earth, it is not the universe, it is not even society, humanity, it is not the human uh, experience or the human existence that he's talking about. Cosmos here literally means the world of sin, the evil world system. What the Apostle Paul calls in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, the present evil age. That's what he's talking about. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here he defines world, and what he thinks in his mind, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that's good news if you believe death is gain. We will find Jesus more and more satisfying. We will find the world less and less disappointing because we have learned to put less and less hope in this world. Why are we so easily disappointed? It's because our hope is staked upon the world. Why are we so easily moved by our circumstances, our trials, and our standard of living, our comfort, our ease, It's because our hope is bound up in those things. But we need to change. Paul says in Acts 20, verse 24, My life, I don't count it dear to myself. Isn't that an amazing statement? I think in our society, we are taught from cradle to grave how to count your life dear to yourself. But it is not so. Revelation 12, 11, it is the martyrs who did not love their life unto death. And in a really real way, if we do not come into this level of resolve, we are out of touch with the biblical Christ. Let me just read to you one verse. John 12, 25. Do you forget? Do you ever forget that Jesus made these kinds of statements? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. There is sort of a blessed self-loathing in this life where we think of our identity in this present evil world system and the way that everything works around us and we hate it. Hate! Jesus didn't say, you don't like it. (laughs) Right? Jesus is the most politically incorrect person that ever walked the face of the earth. He says, you must hate your life in this world. And so my objective is that We need to get in touch with that. The Christian life, therefore, consists of a total transformation of identity. Only somebody that's had their identity completely altered can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But not just our communion with Christ. 
but also, therefore, our conduct in Christ. Our conduct in Christ. Look with me to Philippians chapter 1. This is why I decided to zero in on the book of Philippians, because it gave me so much. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 God is not just concerned with our communion with Christ. He is also concerned with our conduct in Christ. He says in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that the things that he wrote to him were written for this reason, so that he would know how to conduct himself in the household of God. In the household of God. Christianity, therefore, is a comprehensive world and life view. Everything is there. Look with me to the book of Ephesians now. Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 6. Because in going to 6, you'll see there that Ephesians 5 precedes Ephesians 6. <laughs> right? It's real easy if you were following along. <laughs> Ephesians 5 comes before Ephesians 6. And here is the total comprehensive worldview of the Christian and the Christian's conduct. He begins with the most basic family unit of all, the marriage. Husbands, be sub, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now fast forward. Fast forward now to verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So Paul, for Paul, this was his teaching on the family was a total sacrificial loving relationship in mutual respect that reflects Christ's union to the church. That's what marriage is supposed to be. The reason I raise this issue, my dear friends, is because in the church, our church will only be as good as our leadership, and our church will only be as good as our families. And these two things are not mutually exclusive. They work together. This is from A to Z. This is from the leadership down to every member. Every one of us has a role to play. That's what he's saying in Ephesians. Every single one of us has a role to play. From the oldest among us to the youngest child. Everybody has an instrumental part to play in the body of Christ. He gives instructions for the children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And children have a weighty, weighty responsibility. 
And this is the worldview that you need to impart to your children. You know, my best friend growing up died at 21 years old. He was headed to Vegas to go party for his birthday. And on the way back, he and a couple other of my friends fell asleep at the wheel, going about 110. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, Lord, why did you have to take Philip so young? And the Lord, as if instantly I was reminded that my entire life I had to remember that my friend had dishonored his parents his entire life. And I mean really dishonored his parents. Fist fights with his dad that I'd have to break up cursing at his mother, and I would rebuke him. As a heathen, I would rebuke him. And I thought, this verse came right to my mind. Boom. It is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your mother and your father so that you may live long. Obviously, the obvious logic of that is if you live a life of dishonoring your parents, you may not live long. And you may not live long in eternity either. So this is very, very weighty. So the success of our church is also depending on our conduct. How are you teaching your children? How are you instructing them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? How are they doing obeying you? How many times do you need to tell your child to do this or to do that? Have your commandments become a mockery to them? Are they free to disregard mother and father? Can they just laugh behind your back? Are you festering and breeding and cultivating rebellion in your children? It has a ramification. It has a serious consequence for their life and your life and your life. Well, we can go on and on talking about the family unit, talking about fatherhood, motherhood, husbands, wives, singles, bear huge responsibility. We all do. Let me move to my next point before I take another hour on this. Finally, therefore, Paul says, look there at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to Resist the evil day, and having done everything to stand, stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Why do I read that? Because part of the Christian life is that you have a distinctly supernatural worldview. Don't forget in rearing your children that your battle is not with flesh and blood. It is with principalities and powers, spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness. Our world has so trivialized the supernatural, has it not? 
It's either gone all the way to you know, paranormal activity in the horror films that you see and trivializing it that way, or with the anti-supernatural evolutionistic evolutionary worldview where we live in a closed system and we have no external influences whatsoever where we don't need any gods or genies or spirits or angels or demons or anything. But that is not the worldview of the Bible. The worldview of the Bible is that there are, there are real forces of wickedness, he says. And how do we prepare ourselves but by taking on the full armor of God. So this is the last point. Because that leads right to the fact that we cannot, a biblical church, a pure church, cannot take its cue from culture. That's part of the evil world system. We, cannot, we have to have a responsible and sober view of the culture. We cannot look to the culture. We cannot hope in the culture. We will not be understood by the culture. And to a large degree, we will never, ever be compatible with the culture. It's that simple. Just reading an article the other day I posted on Facebook. Well, I didn't. You guys know that about me. I didn't, but someone did for me. fine for employers that refuse to call uh, Bruce Jenner by his female name. So if you want to have a Christian business, anti-discrimination laws are telling you, you must hire these kinds of people, and you must call her, him, and him, her, if that's what they want. And if you don't do that, you can be penalized up to $250,000. And that was, um, that was a legitimate news agency that put that out. This is what I mean by we are diametrically opposed in many ways to our culture. But Paul also reminds us of how to deal with this. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, and I think you know this verse. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, spoken to a Roman province known as Philippi, where citizenship is everything in Rome. But Paul is in essence saying our true citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our, watch this, humble estate. What does it mean to be in conflict with the culture? Humble state. That's what it means. He will transform that into the conformity with his body, the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject everything to himself. We don't need to just participate in the gospel, participate in Christ, but also we need to be firmly participating in the kingdom. That is to say, we have to be kingdom-minded. We have to have kingdom ethics. We have to have a kingdom perspective. We need to remember that our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. For the Apostle Paul, eschatology was not just an encouragement. It was also an incentive. It empowered him. It gave him hope. And so I give you hope, brothers and sisters, 
that as we venture into a new year full of all sorts of uncertainties, I mean, think about what happened this year. Think about it. Just reflect. I won't reflect because I can reflect and reflect and reflect. But in one year, so much can change. But if you have a proper eschatological worldview that understands that we are citizens of the kingdom of God before anything else, then it gives us hope. We're able to endure. We're looking for a Savior. Our lowliest state is what? It's nothing. It is a sojourn. We're pilgrims. We're exiles. We're traveling through. This is our exodus. And we will reach our Canaan. We will reach our everlasting rest. I'll leave you with one more scripture. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. What do we learn from the book of Exodus for our lives? Well, what we learn is that we are in an exodus, that we are in a wilderness state, and it will be that way until the end of the age, brothers and sisters. We will always be in a wilderness experience in this life, full of danger and, and obstacles and adversaries and trials and tribulations. So Paul tells us, or Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles does not mean as opposed to Jews. Understand that by this period of time in the New Testament, the word Gentile is no longer simply referring to the division of Jew and Gentile, but ironically now Gentile is code for unbelievers. Remarkable. Paul does the same thing. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds observe them and glorify God in the day of visitation. And my wife challenged me on the interpretation of that verse. <laughs> what is the day of visitation? And I thought, well, I know the interpretation of that verse. I think. And uh, I didn't even know, but in the commentaries, there is a debate as to what it is. And I always assumed that I was right. And I was right. <laughs> That's so, I know that sounds totally prideful. The day of visitation just simply means when God decides to visit those people with salvation. To visit those people with a prospect of salvation. And if they can turn and say, yeah, but your people live like this, right? Why should I believe when I see this person at, job, at the job joking along with all the jokes and going along with all the gossip and all the backbiting, going along with all the murmuring and the complaining. There's no difference between he and me. Therefore, Paul, Peter says, keep your behavior excellent. Because those co-workers of yours, at any time, God may visit them with salvation. And so... What are we to do if we are to keep our church going down the right path? Well, number one, we are to, like the Philippians, 
We are to participate in the gospel. Number two, we are to participate in Christ, which means we are cognizant of our communion with Christ and our conduct with Christ. And number three, we are to participate in the kingdom, which means we have an eschatological worldview that purifies us and gives us hope as we eagerly await him in the wilderness of sin. Amen? Father, Lord, we just confess to you now, Lord, that we are but a needy church in need of your grace, constantly in need of your grace, your wisdom, your strength, your power. Lead us, O God. I pray, Father, for this new year, for 2016, that you would just unleash your blessings on our church. Oh, Lord, bless our church financially. Bless our church ministerially. Give vision to your people. Birth burdens in people's hearts for this ministry and that ministry. Give mothers and fathers new passion to rear their children in the gospel. Give them new zeal. Give husbands and wives new resolve to love one another, to cherish one another to be Christ and the church to one another. We pray for the single people in our church. Strengthen them. Keep them pure. Cause them to love you and not to love the world. Give them hope, endurance, and patience. Bring them a husband and a wife in your time. And Father, we just lift up the leadership of our church, pastors, deacons. Give us wisdom. Give us a passion for your glory. Give us conviction. Keep us on the straight and narrow path. Father, help us to implement the things that are in your word so that we can say when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ that we ran the church according to your word. That we didn't try to get imaginative with it. We didn't try to get creative with ministry. But Lord, we really do genuinely want to be biblical in what we do. And there's so many temptations all around us to just do the complete opposite of that. And so God, I pray that you would give us the conviction that we need to be orthodox, to be faithful, to be biblical, all for your glory, all for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.